Amen. Can we just appreciate the team? Yeah. Thanks, guys. You know, God is honored by our worship, regardless of how it comes out sometimes. Um, And it's a sweet, sweet sound in his ear. Uh, We've got lots coming up. There's lots of stuff in the bulletin. There's even an extra insert. The insert's talking about Empowered to Connect. There's camp sign-ups. There's a prayer service uh, that's coming up, not this Friday, but next Friday, where the whole church, all three services are just going to be together as a time to just pray together. It'll be awesome. But uh, starting today, uh, we have Financial Peace University class uh, starting. Chuck's in the back, uh, and he'll be able to answer any and all of your questions if you want to know more about that. With that, uh, kids, you are dismissed off to your classes. Thanks for worshiping with us. Have a great time. Uh, Say thank you to your teachers while you're there, um, and just enjoy yourselves. The rest of you, you're with me. Oh yeah, sorry, middle school too. My bad. You'd think I would know that, but I don't. It's one of those mornings, you know? It's a morning full of grace. I love the Grand Canyon. Uh, my, my first trip there, my dad, who's sitting up here, told me, Ben, we're going to go see the biggest hole in the ground. And I was jazzed. I was about three years old. And so we drive for hours and hours and hours. And, and we finally get there. And we get up to the edge. I'm like... Where is it? <laughs> I had a very different idea of what a big hole in the ground was. I had a very different mental image. Uh, and so I was kind of let down <laughs> in some ways. But since then, I've, I've been there multiple times. And in 2015, I, I took my family to go and see the Grand Canyon. Micah was six, Gabriel was four, and Ava was two. And I was so excited to show them. Since my big hole experience, I'd had multiple other trips out there as a kid. So I remembered the Grand Canyon. I had vivid memories and pictures of seeing it and, and just looking at the grandeur of it, right? And, and so I was just like so pumped. I told my kids like, man, like I'm so excited to show you the Grand Canyon, We get there, and we park the car, and not even Laura had been there before. So not only am I getting to show my kids the Grand Canyon for the first time, but I'm getting to show Laura as well. We park our car, and we're walking up to the Vista Point, and I can start to see the canyon, and tears are starting to well up in my eyes as we're walking up because I know what we're about to experience. And we get about 30 feet away from that vista point. And Micah finds a stone bench. And he's all excited. He's like, Dad, look at this bench. <laughs> and he gets up on the bench and he's climbing on the bench and, and jumping off the bench and, and running around the bench. And Dad, look at this bench. This bench is so cool. And Gabriel starts climbing on the bench and Ava's just sitting in her car seat, you know, like whatever, you know. But the other two are just so excited about this bench and on the bench and off the bench and around the bench. And I'm like, 
Who cares about the bench? <laughs> we are 30 feet away from something that is so beautiful and so amazing, and you're stuck on this stinking bench. <laughs> the Grand Canyon is right there. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with the bench. And there's nothing wrong with kids running. In fact, we encourage them to run around, to play, to get their energy out. But I just don't want them to miss out on the bigger spectacle that is mere feet away. But aren't we often just as bad at Micah at this? You're trying to solve an issue with someone. You're in a heated discussion, and they say one word in a way that sets you off, and you fixate on that one word instead of on the bigger discussion at hand. You're working hard on a project for school or for work, and you spend tons of time making sure that it looks amazing. Did I get the right color? Did I use the right font? Was that transition good enough? You work so hard to make it look amazing that you forget about the content. And building out the project and and making it content rich. You get so fixed on one task, one person, one chore, that you miss seeing the many other things or people around you that are part of the bigger picture. We do this with scripture too. We get so fixated on one verse that we miss the bigger picture of what's going on. And that can even lead us away from the truths the author is trying to communicate. Now, are these little things bad? No, of course not. It's not bad to make sure that every word is used correctly. It's not bad to make sure that your project looks good. It's not bad to focus on a person or a task or a chore. It's not bad to dive in and study a verse. But it's important to always do these things with the bigger picture in mind. We need to see bigger. Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. This morning, as we look at our passage, we're going to look at part of our passage on its own. But then we're going to take a step back and see how it fits in the bigger picture of what Jesus is talking about. And then we'll step back even further and see how this is all a part of the big message of the book of Luke. In fact, in your notes, you'll see that we go backwards through the passage, including more and more of the passages we progress this morning. I got to warn you, it's going to be tough for you linear thinkers. But hang in there. This is coming uh, from another linear thinker, uh, so I'm right there with you. It was, it was definitely a tough one to put together but I want to look at it a little bit of a different way. Now, as we read the passage together, I want to remind you that this is God's word. All of it is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Some like to stand as we read it, Some like to sit because it's easier for them to focus. Whether you stand or sit, remember who is speaking here. 
So if you'd like to, you can stand. If you'd like to sit, you can sit. But we're going to read God's word together. Luke chapter 5, and we're starting in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. God, we are thankful for your word. God, we are thankful that that we get to hear directly from you. And so, God, as we dive into this passage, help us not get fixated on the bench. But God, help us to see the bigger picture of what you want us to hear. And God, let it radically change us. As you've been working in our hearts and helping us grow from the day you called us. Help us to draw closer to you and become more like you, even this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, we are going to begin with the parable at the end of our passage. It's a tricky one, so we're going to take a good chunk of time looking at it. Let's read it again. Verse 36, he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Now, the setting of this is absolutely perfect. Because Jesus is sitting around with others and eating a meal. So I'm sure, as he's talking about the old and the new garments, he's probably reaching out and touching garments as he's talking about it. No one puts a piece from a new garment and he reaches out and touches one and puts it on an old garment and reaches out and touches one. He's pointing them out. And he's probably doing it with the same of the wine and the wineskins, holding them up, holding a wineskin as he's talking about it, drinking the wine, showing people. Now there's a clear dichotomy here between the old and the new. Right? The old garment and the new garment don't mix. In an endeavor to repair the old garment, the new garment 
is ripped. Let's rip off a piece from this new garment and use it to repair the old. And then the patch doesn't match the old garment. And in Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Mark also record uh, this same parable, this same whole interaction. And they add something else. In Matthew and Mark, it talks about the new piece as an unshrunk cloth. And so when they put it on the old garment and the the garment is washed, the, the new piece shrinks and it rips the old garment even more. So the old and the new garment don't mix. Again, the old wineskin and the new wine don't mix. Back in those days, wine was kept in wineskins, which was usually made out of sheepskin or goatskin. And when the wineskin was new, it was fairly elastic. It would be able to stretch. And this was important when you're putting in new wine, which is still fermenting, right? So as the wine ferments, it expands, and so the, the wineskin needs to be able to expand along with it. But as the wineskin aged, it became more rigid. So if new, still fermenting wine was put into an old wineskin, the old wineskin wouldn't be able to expand and would burst, destroying the wineskin and spilling the wine. So this is obviously, as you look at this parable, this is the big point that Jesus is making, that the old and the new don't mix. But what is Jesus referring to? The old and new what? Also, who is the old and who is the new? Now, before we dive into these questions, it's important to remember that not every little bit of a parable always means something, right? When Jesus tells the parable of the widow that nags the judge until he can't take it anymore and finally gives her what she wants, Jesus isn't saying that God will cave if we nag him enough, but he'll do it just to get us off his back, right? That's reading too much into the parable. Or in the prodigal son, when he goes and starts feeding the pigs, we don't need to sit and figure out what do the pigs represent, right? Again, that's not the point of the parable. Those may be more obvious, but other times it's not so obvious what we should read into and what we shouldn't. So it's worth our time and effort to study these parables to do our best to understand what Jesus was trying to communicate. So we're going to do that with this parable now. So first of all, what is Jesus talking about? Old what? New what? There's a lot of different thoughts and and ideas tossed out about this. Maybe he's talking about religious practices. Maybe he's talking about law or covenant or Judaism. Maybe the old is supposed to represent God's plan and the new is Jewish law and customs. Maybe the old is Jewish ritualism and new is spiritual freedom. Maybe the old is a sinful nature and, and new is new birth. Now, to answer this, we have to see a little bigger. Right before this, people are asking about fasting and prayers. And Jesus is saying why his disciples aren't doing those things the same way that others are. Now, we're going to come back to that in a little bit. So I see this as Jesus talking about laws and customs. Uh, The idea, idea about sin, nature, and new birth might make sense if the parable is taken in isolation. But it doesn't fit within the context of the passage. But even broader than that, because Jesus didn't fixate on this and make it abundantly clear, I don't think we need to fret too hard over whether he's specifically talking about law or covenant or customs or rituals. The bigger point is that there's a difference between what the Jewish leaders see as right and wrong and what Jesus sees as right and wrong, which leads to 
the second question. Who is the old and who is the new? Well, of course, the Pharisees are the old and Jesus is the new, right? Well, not necessarily. I thought that for a long time by default, but after doing some digging, there's a reasonable case to be made for the other viewpoint, that Jesus is the old and the Pharisees are the new. Let me break these down for you. With Pharisees as the old and Jesus as the new, the Pharisees have been around for thousands of years at this point. People have gotten used to their customs and their ways. Also, Jesus shows up and says that these people must be born again, that he's bringing a new covenant. He says in Matthew, you've heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. Also in our parable, the old wineskins aren't flexible. They're rigid, and that's why they break. And the Pharisees were rigid as well, not flexible. So there's a case to be made for the fact that the Pharisees are what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the old, and Jesus is the new, right? It makes sense. But let's look at it from the other viewpoint. What if Jesus is the old and the Pharisees are the new? Because Jesus has said he came to fulfill the law. And throughout the book of Luke, Luke is showing that Jesus is here to fulfill the prophecies and not do away with the law. Also, there's no mention of destroying the old garment or throwing away the old wineskin. Why didn't Jesus just say, toss the old? Rather, he's saying the old is worth keeping around and repairing. So if the old is worth preserving, then maybe the old is the way that things should be, but have become tattered over time. Now, after studying this for a while, and there's even more to look at in here, uh, I've have a direction that I lean. But I want you to come to your own conclusion on this. Whatever you decide, it's important that, first of all, your decision is based on what you see in Scripture. It's important that you're open to listening to the other side. And it's important that you realize that this isn't the crux of what Jesus is saying. Just like old and new what, Jesus isn't clear or direct here about who the old represents and who the new represents. So though Jesus knew what he meant, he didn't make a big deal of it, which tells me that the answer to this question isn't the main point that he's making. Now again, we're fixating on this, right? And we're taking time to look at this because the little things aren't bad. Micah running around the bench isn't a bad thing. But we're going to take it and look at it, and then we're going to see how it fits into the bigger picture. Now, let's take a look at how these two viewpoints change how you see the parable. There's some key points of this parable. And, and I've, I've drawn out four that, that are kind of key points in this parable that Jesus is trying to make. First of all, the old garment needs repair. Second, using new cloth to do the repair is detrimental to both garments, okay? And then, new wine and old wineskins would destroy both the wine and the wineskins. And then finally, and this is actually quoted verse 39, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And I want to focus on that one as well, because that verse is included in Luke, and it's not included in Matthew and Mark. So this is something that's unique to what Luke has brought in. So here's how the meaning of these key points could change based on whether the Pharisees are old and Jesus is new or vice versa, okay? So 
I'm going to kind of walk through this chart. Some of you really like charts. And I know for some of you in the back, it might be a little harder to read. It's okay. Um, again, this isn't the crux, but I just wanted to show you how these viewpoints change a little bit of how we read the parable. So with the old garment needing repair, if the Pharisees are old and Jesus is new, there's something wrong with this old system that the Jews have been using, and Jesus is here to fix it. But if Jesus is old and the Pharisees are new, then the way things were supposed to be have been distorted and need to be fixed, and Jesus is here to fix it. Now, using cloth to do the repair is detrimental to both garments. How does this look if the Pharisees are old and Jesus is new? Well, if the Pharisees are old and Jesus is new, then trying to use Jesus to repair Jewish law and customs will rip Jesus away from his ministry, that's not why he was here, and hurt Jewish law. But then if Jesus is old and the Pharisees are new, the Pharisees tried to improve on God's model, and in doing so, destroyed both that and their way. Third, new wine and old wineskins would destroy both the wine and the wineskins. Again, if Pharisees were old and Jesus is new, it could mean that they were trying to bring Jesus' teaching to, or it could mean that trying to bring Jesus' teaching to Jewish customs would destroy both. But again, flipping it, it could mean trying to add customs and laws to God's design would destroy both. And I want you to see, and we're going to come back to this in just a minute, that there's, there's not a lot of difference here. Okay? There's difference, but there's not a lot. There's the most difference right here. I'm sorry, I fell behind one. All right, last one. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. If the Pharisees are old and Jesus is new, then you'd have to read that verse as people can get set in their ways and accept the comfortable even if it's misguided or wrong. Okay? But if Jesus is old and Pharisees are new, then you take it more at face value. God's design is so good that people won't want anything to do with different living. I want you to notice how little changes here, regardless of who is old and who is new. Either way, Jesus is here to repair what's broken. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. That's what Jesus showed up to do, to, to show them the wrong way of living. Also, there isn't a room, there isn't room for a mix between the old and the new. And the only real change is how you interpret verse 39. But either way, we know that both statements are true, that people can be stuck in their old ways and miss out on what Jesus has to offer, and that Jesus is so good that anything else fades away. So, yes, it's so important to look at the details of this parable. But it's important to take a step backwards and see big. The conversation just beforehand gives us some insight into this parable, which we already looked at a little bit. Now, I want to look at this even more. Verses 33 to 35 of our passage. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now this is about fasting. 
part of Jewish custom and law was to fast. Here's some different reasons why people fasted in Scripture. And for those that don't know, fasting is simply abstaining from food for a period of time. Now, granted, through Scripture, it's around food, but since then, like, we've used it in other ways. Fasting from social media, fasting from technology, fasting from all sorts of different things. Here are some different reasons why people fasted in Scripture. People fasted when facing trouble. Jehoshaphat, Saul, Esther, all fasted when facing trouble. There is a huge army coming after Israel. And Jehoshaphat said to his people, like, we need to stop and pray and fast. Uh, People fasted when facing judgment. Moses, Ahab, Joel, the Ninevites. As, as Jonah shows up and tells the nation of Nineveh, like, you're headed in the wrong direction, they, they all fall and put on sackcloth and ashes, and they fast. People fasted uh, when afflicted. Daniel, Darius, David, Jonathan are just examples of people that fasted when they were afflicted. People fasted when they were grieving. David did. The people of Jabesh Gilead did. People fasted for the sake of others. Ezra did. David did did in the Psalms. And fasting was a part of Jewish regularity. It was a spiritual discipline. So here these Pharisees uh, are looking down upon others because they're not fasting. Because their mindset was, well, if you don't fast, then you're not following the customs and the rituals that we should be. You're not following this spiritual discipline. And so that's why it's being brought up here. These others are fasting, and Jesus' disciples aren't. Now, Jesus is pointing out that none of these situations apply here. The disciples aren't facing trouble. The disciples aren't facing judgment. They aren't afflicted. They aren't grieving. Now, that will be coming, which is why Jesus says they will fast in those days. You think they're going to be facing trouble? They're going to be afflicted. They're going to be grieving. When Jesus dies, of course they will. So Jesus says, like, they will fast in those days. But he's saying now is not the time for fasting. So yes, this is about fasting, but this is about more than fasting. Because if this was just about fasting, then the parable that we just read doesn't make sense. Again, there's a clear dichotomy between the old and the new. But as Jesus is talking about fasting, he's showing that fasting is valuable in its appropriate time. He's not saying you either fast or you don't, right? He's saying fasting is appropriate at some times and not at others. So fasting isn't against, or not fasting isn't against what the Jews are doing. So yes, this is about fasting, but it's about more than that. So we need to take another step back and see bigger. So let's go back to verse 29. It says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, many of you know that tax collectors weren't really the favorite kind of people around that time. See, the way it worked is that different people would bid on this job from Rome, 
Rome said, look, we need some taxes. So, hey, how, how much are you going to get? How much are you going to get? Okay, you know, Caleb, you, you bid more than Michael. So guess what? You get the job, right? So you're going to get us more taxes than he will. So the job is yours. So you give your money to Rome and say, here you go. Here's, here's my taxes. And then the tax collector goes and collects from the people to make up the money that they just gave to Rome. But of course, they're not going to like just make up the money that they got from Rome. They're going to take a little bit more because, you know, they got to eat and they got to, you know, have a house and, you know, it's got to be a nice house. So I'm going to take a little bit more and, you know, I got to have the good food. So I'm going to take a little bit more. And they took way more than they needed to. And there wasn't really a lot of checks and balances with them. So they were kind of free to take whatever they wanted. And so guess what? They were looked down on. They were despised. They were scum. They abused their authority. And this role was actually avoided by the Roman elite because of the social stigma around this specific role. Now, here's the bigger issue. Notice that the Pharisees here identify these people as sinners. Luke just calls them others. It says there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining a table. And the Pharisees grumbled and said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, the Pharisees see people doing things that the Pharisees know are wrong. There was a process to make yourself ceremonial, ceremonially clean when you ate as a Jew. And the Pharisees saw what the disciples and Jesus were doing as breaking that process. They also saw them not fasting as sinning. And so they were calling these things out. But as we've been talking about this whole morning, the Pharisees were fixated on smaller things and were missing the bigger picture. They were looking at the bench instead of seeing the Grand Canyon. Now, is there anything wrong with fasting? Absolutely not. Is there anything wrong with wanting to keep yourself clean and pure? Absolutely not. But the Pharisees were so focused on the practices themselves that they were missing the purpose behind those practices, which is why Jesus pointed out why this wasn't the right time for his disciples to fast, which is also why Jesus pointed out their error in thinking that eating with tax collectors and sinners was wrong. The Pharisees were so focused on the actions that they had forgotten the purpose behind those actions, which made it harder for them, which made it hard for them to see bigger. As far as they were concerned, they were doing just fine, which puts a lot of weight on what Jesus tells them. Again, verses 31 and 32, Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, it's easy to catch who Jesus came for. The physician is there for the sick. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. And so that's why he's with the sinners and the tax collectors. They're sick. They need to repent. But look at the other side of those statements. Those who are well have no need of a physician. I have not come to call the righteous. Now, let me ask you, were the Pharisees well? Were they righteous? 
Were they? Answer me. No. They thought they were, right? But they weren't. They were spiritually sick also. They were sinners in need of repentance. But they couldn't see their own state. Their failure to become disciples is perhaps connected with the fact that repentance is not easy for the respectable and the self-righteous. And that is exactly where they sat for the most part. Respectable, self-righteous. So where are you at? As I look at the Gospels, I read about the Pharisees, and I shake my head. How could they be so short-sighted? Couldn't they have seen the bigger picture of what Jesus was doing? How could they have missed it so bad? And then I say, shame on those Pharisees. I would never have done that. See the problem? Isn't that exactly what the Pharisees were doing? And by saying that, doesn't that put me squarely in their camp? Rather than shake our heads and judge the Pharisees, we should focus on learning from their mistakes. How do I look at others that aren't living rightly? Does it make me feel more respectable and self-righteous? Or do I see this person as I once was, a fellow sinner in need of repentance? Before I repented, I was right in the same boat. It's easy to get fixated on living rightly. And it's good to pursue right living. And it's not a bad thing to help others see their sin. In fact, I don't think that every Pharisee lived with a consciously self-righteous attitude. I think some were genuinely doing what they thought was right. Now, granted, plenty of them were arrogantly self-righteous. But I don't think all of them were. And I think that we can fall into the same trap getting so fixated on the actions that we lose sight of the bigger picture. But we cannot lose sight of the bigger picture. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are all able to be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That includes the Pharisee. That includes the self-righteous person. That includes the person who is staunchly living in sin. Each and every one of us is in need of the good doctor. Each and every one of us on our own is sick, is in need of repentance. So we need to respond. And you know who understood this? Levi did. Look at verses 27 and 28. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now remember who Levi was. By the way, Levi uh, in other gospels is also called Matthew. He's one of Jesus' 12 disciples. But just before that, he is a tax collector, despised, looked down upon, Probably very few friends, if any. He understood where he was on his own. And then Jesus comes and calls Levi. And in calling Levi, Jesus removes all credentials for membership outside of repentance. 
In fact, as Robert Munger said, the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. The unworthiness. Look at Levi's response. He was sitting, and now he stands and follows. He takes an active step towards Jesus. He leaves everything. Now, yes, we saw this before with our fishermen. Remember Peter, James, and John? They get up and they left everything and followed Jesus. So this is reinforcing that part of following. It's that part of following Jesus that's, that's leaving everything. Part of following Jesus is leaving everything. But this is an even bigger step for Levi. Yes, the fishermen left everything, but it wouldn't have been too difficult for them to go back to fishing if they stopped following Jesus, which in fact they actually do after Jesus dies. Remember in, in John, Jesus goes and engages with them after he's risen from the dead. And you know what they're doing? They're fishing. They were able to go back to it. They had this kind of safety net that they could fall back on. But Levi cannot come back to this. He can't come back to doing tax collecting again. In leaving, he's giving up his contract. He's severing his ties with the business. He now has nothing to come back to. A a guy that does that, guess what? Rome doesn't want him as a tax collector again. You're going to walk out? Okay, forget it. You're done. But for him, following Jesus is that worth it. And clearly worth celebrating, which is why they have this big party and feast. So have you left everything? Have you ditched every safety net in surrender to Jesus? This is another part of the bigger picture. Part of seeing bigger is seeing what you still need to leave, what you're still hanging on to. So see bigger. Remember who the good doctor is, what he has saved you from. Leave everything and follow him. Because seeing bigger begins and ends with Jesus. He is everything we need to see. Everything. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. As we fix our eyes on Jesus... As we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.
Thank you, Jesus. That we can fix and the joy for some reason is having a relationship with me? Am I really that valuable? But I know that I am because you've told me that I am. But in drawing me to you, God, you've asked me to leave everything and follow. God, forgive me for the times when I get so fixated on little things. When I take opportunities to show others how righteous I am. Oops, I'm not. God, help me to step back and see the bigger picture. Help me to step back and see that it's about you. It's not about doing what's right. It's about running after you. And naturally, as we do that, of course we will do what's right because we want more of you. And we're focused on you. And we're not focused on the things around us that can drag us down, that can pull us away. So God, just help us to focus on you. Help us to see that you are the bigger picture. You are worth our focus. You are worth leaving everything behind. Help us to do that, Jesus.